Last fall, Tina and I were privileged to spend a day in Boston, Massachusetts after the inauguration service for the Vineyard's new national director, Phil Strout. We walked the Freedom Trail. It's a two and a half mile, mostly brick path through downtown Boston that leads to 17 historic uh, sites. The fourth stop on the trail is the Granary Burying Ground. It's a two-acre cemetery that was started in 1660 and contains 2,300 gravestones. The granary is the final resting place for many notable Revolutionary War-era patriots, including three signers of the Declaration of Independence, Paul Revere, and five victims of the Boston Massacre. I found one grave marker inscribed with the name Benj James, which just happens to be my name, buried in 1790. We might think of these kind of people as old, and likely we'd be intrigued by the number of stories that they could tell. Today we're actually going to hear the story of someone much older. His name is Job. His story is recorded for us in the Old Testament book called the Book of Job. Today we're continuing the series of sermons that we've called Our God is Too Small. Our contention has been that very often we think of God as too weak or too distant, too uninterested or too unable or too unwilling to actually do anything on our behalf. Or we think, on the other hand, that we're too unworthy we're too broken, we're too sinful, we're too whatever to possibly warrant God moving on our behalf, his love and his provision. And so one of the main things of which we need to be regularly reminded when we get together at the start of every week to worship is just really how big God is and what he has promised us as his sons and daughters. Over these six weeks, in the stories of some of the Old Testament saints, we, we are being encouraged to experience and, and see God as much larger, as bigger. And so far, in the story of Jacob, we've seen that God is always good. In the story of Joseph, we saw that God is always present. In the story of David, we saw that God is able, able to dispense his love and power to us in just the right doses at just the right time. And then last week, we were privileged to hear from Kyle Benefield, our friends who are church planters in Mazatlan, Mexico, from the story of Gideon, where we learned that God is powerful. And today, in the story of Job, we'll discover that God is trustworthy. Let's pray together. God, we bow our heads and hearts before you here this morning, the start of a brand new week. We say thank you. Thank you for life. Thank you for breath. Thank you for freedom. Thank you for every good and perfect gift that comes from you. We pray the prayer you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. We bless your name for who you are and all that you've done. We bless your name for the security of a future in Christ, for your favor, your blessing, for the fullness of your spirit, for the redemption that comes through Jesus and his completed work on the cross and in the empty tomb. We welcome you here today, and not just in this room, but right next door in Vineyard Kids, where they are learning, growing, worshiping as well. Um, Lord, may we experience more of you. May we leave different than when we came. May you fill us with your Holy Spirit and put power on your word to our lives, where 
You know we need it in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Job, not Job, by the way, is the first of what are called the five poetic books of the Old Testament, followed by Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs. And while it appears in the middle of our English Bible, there's considerable debate as to its age and its place in the canon of Scripture. Many ancient rabbis and modern scholars agree that it's likely written in very primitive times. The names and places that are actually mentioned in the book seem to give it a setting among the descendants of Esau. He'd be the grandson of Abraham, which would make it the very first book written in the Bible, perhaps the oldest actual book. Some believe it's actually the oldest book written and preserved. So chronologically, it would most accurately be placed as the first book in your Bible, or at the latest, after the book of Genesis. There's no consensus as to its author. Jewish tradition ascribes uh, the book to Moses. Others believe Job himself wrote it, or perhaps dictated it to Moses in, uh, in the third person. Some have argued that the book of Job is not a... a an actual narrative of historical fact, but in fact a parable that Job himself was not a real person, but was a a mythical person. Still others have held the book is partly historical and partly fable, um, more like a work of fiction that's based on facts, like Shakespearean plays, for instance. And I only share these introductory comments in brief to enlarge your awareness that a scholarly study of the book of Job is far from simple. Today, we can pick up an English Bible that is now centuries and languages and customs far removed from the original manuscript and culture, and we can read this story largely clueless about the battles that rage surrounding its age and its authorship and its place in the canon of Scripture and what do the idioms and figures of speech actually mean and a lot of other things. Sometimes I actually chuckle when people today who want to dramatically emphasize their point or their particular conviction, and they say, the Bible clearly states when, in fact, if you're honest, in many cases, it's just not that clear, okay? (laughs) If you're honest. Now, the book of Job is widely recognized, even in secular circles, as one of the world's most beautiful, magnificent, dramatic poems. What the English author, uh, reader does not understand is that actually the book of Job is a poem. Now, the first two chapters are an introductory prologue written in prose, uh, and the final 11 verses of the last chapter, 42, are written in prose, like an epilogue, as it were. But the bulk of the book is actually a Hebrew poem. Its theme, its majesty in terms of its thought patterns, the grandeur of its literary sweep uh, it uses metaphors and quotations and citations from folk literature and prose and lament and rhetorical questions and humor, they're beautiful and unexcelled in any other book, even in the Bible. The book of Job deals with a very perplexing, profound, and difficult subject, the mystery of human suffering. 
In particular, it wrestles with the questions, how could a good God create a world where there is so much suffering and evil? And in particular, why do the righteous suffer? Theologians, historians, philosophers, critics of literature, pastors, everyday ordinary people have read and pondered and reflected on and quoted and wrestled with and tried to make sense out of Job for centuries. And I will join the long list in confessing that I shrink in its shadow. I don't know that any of us really understand the answers to these perplexing questions any better than we did in Job's day. Through my reading of the book of Job, I, I've read it every year for the last 18 years uh, in my trip through the, through the Bible in one year. I'll tell you, I've been encouraged by Job. I've been depressed by Job. I've been comforted by Job. I've been inspired by Job. I've been angered by Job, all mixed together. Today, I'm going to try to make just a few observations that will help us see God as really big. The book opens with a description of Job. He is a desert prince, what in those times was called a king of immense wealth and influence. And we read these words in Job 1, 1 to 3. There was once a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons, three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and he employed many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. Then, in verses 6 to 12, and in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, uh, we, we read this very strange dialogue between God and Satan, or more literally in the Hebrew, the Satan, or more tr- literally translated, the adversary. Satan accused Job of being mercenary in his goodness. That is to say, Job was motivated to live right and do right because God blessed him financially. And, and Satan said, well, anybody would do it if you blessed him the way you've blessed Job. So God allowed Satan to test Job first by taking all of his children, all, uh, all of his belongings, his house and his flocks. And then secondly, tested him in the form of painful, full-body boils. Now, the modern reader sees things that at the time, neither Job, his wife, nor his friends could see. It's like we are peering behind the scenes in the heavenly realms. It's like watching the extras on a DVD movie. We see the story behind the story the making of the movie. Maybe you get an interview with the director as he or she narrates the director's cut. And because of this glimpse, we now understand in a way that Job did not, at least during the experience, that we, when we face trials of many kinds, God is not our problem. It is Satan that is behind the evils that curse the earth. You see, God created the earth beautiful, didn't he? peaceful, joyful, free from sin and sickness and oppression, pain and trouble. But when our spiritual foreparents, Adam and Eve, succumbed to the original temptation, thinking that they knew how to run life better than God, that is rooted in pride and self-centeredness, 
their sin caused sickness, disease, and death to enter God's good world. And this brought the curse, and with it, sin and evil. In Genesis, the book, the first book of the Bible, clearly attributes the origin of sin and evil to Satan. And then the scriptures make it progressively clearer that he, Satan, the adversary, is responsible for all the evil that afflicts humanity. So think about it this way. Sickness, disease, lack, poverty, oppression, war, famine, abuse, murder, hatred, retaliation, hard-heartedness or pride, self-centeredness, all of that comes from the devil, the evil one, Satan. Now, in their dialogue, Satan told God, I've been patrolling the earth. Other translations would read, I've been going to and fro or walking up and down on the earth. And this shows us his restless and unrelenting activity on the earth. The earth is the scene and the sphere of Satan's activity. The earth created and intended by God to be good, but then became corrupt because of Satan. Now, the New Testament commentary uh, says this in the book of James. When you're being tempted, don't say, God's tempting me. God's never tempted to wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin's allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes nor casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word, and we, out of all his creation, became his prized possession. Now, Jesus describes it this way in these words in John 10.10. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy, but my purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life. And so... The New Testament commentary on what we read in Job is this. God is good. He does not tempt us to evil. He he, uh, never tempts to sin, and he never changes. The devil comes to steal and kill and destroy. But God desires that we have a rich and satisfying life because we are his prized possession. Now, this behind-the-scenes glimpse is also encouraging in, in this regard. Satan's authority in the world system is limited. He is not all-knowing, all-powerful, or unlimited in the scope of his power or authority. I know, because many times we all think, like, the devil just feels like he can do anything he wants, right? It feels like like it's just like serendipitous, like it, uh, he just has access and power, but but he can't do whatever he wants. The Bible shows he's accountable to God, and even in the spiritual warfare that we experience, there's a divine limitation. God is bigger than any problem that we face, any temptation in which we uh, w- with which we wrestle, any trial 
of our faith that we experience, any grief we suffer, any evil we battle. Satan's source and, and, and sphere of authority is limited. God loves us and his desire for us is good. He is on our side in the battle. Well, then in chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, Job's three friends show up. And here's what we read. When three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy that he'd suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Their names were Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust in the air over their heads to show their grief. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. Now, in some ways, the most powerful thing you can do when someone you love is suffering is practice what we just read in verse verse 13. It says, no one said a word. Just be with. Don't be concerned with what to say. Because the truth is told that much of what they proceeded to say in the next 28 chapters is far from comforting and encouraging. They should have stopped before they started. Just be with. People who are in pain are not looking for your profound answers to life's cosmic questions. Just be with. I like how Joseph Cardinal Bernadine says it this way in his powerful book titled The Gift of Peace. Whenever we are with people who suffer, it frequently becomes evident that there's very little we can do to help them other than be present to them, walk with them as the Lord walks with us. The ministry of presence is what we should learn. It's what Job's friends should have learned. But then what actually happens is from chapters 3 to chapters 31 are a series of poetic exchanges, three cycles of three speeches, each by Job's friends, followed by a response from Job. And the problem at the center of the discussion is, why does Job suffer? Frankly, the results are far from satisfactory. But Eliphaz begins, presumably because he's the oldest, and he bases his argument on the old theory. Job suffers because he's sinned. He represents what we might call the self-righteous moralist. And quite frankly, it's where a lot of people still are today, believing that everyone who suffers is because they've done something wrong. They've sinned, they have a fault, uh, maybe they've made a mistake, or their faith is weak. Then Bildad shares his religious tradition that God would not abandon a righteous person, nor would he bless a sinful person. And so he concludes that Job is a hypocrite to maintain his innocence. He represents the religious legalist. Uh, He says, obviously, there's rules that God follows. Job, you've disobeyed the rules, and so you must not be who you say you are because you're suffering. And then there's Zophar. He's less courteous and more drastic, and he bases his charges on assumption. He just assumes that Job's guilty, and he concludes that Job, consequently, deserves his affliction. We might call him a judgmental bigot. 
fine friend. Basically, Zophar is saying, Job, I know that you're wrong and you've committed sin. I know you're guilty and therefore you are deserving of the punishment that you're getting. You see, to judge someone is to elevate ourselves in a place of moral superiority and presume that we know about the intents and motives of someone's heart that they do not know. That's what's wrong with judgment. Because only God can judge in that sense. Now, all three friends are insisting that Job's suffering is the result of his sin and that God's favor or disfavor is directly indicated by one's blessing or adversity. They spin it slightly differently, but it's the same old belief system. If you obey God, you are blessed. If you disobey God, you're cursed. You obey God, you receive his favor. If you disobey God, you suffer adversity. And frankly, this very simple, rigid, inflexible view of God is still owned by many people today. Many religious people uh, in and out of the church kind of still view that, you know, that, that if you're kind of good and live right, you'll, you'll, you'll be blessed. And if you're bad, you kind of get what you deserve. And these kinds of people, uh, like Job's friends, insist that goodness or sinfulness is always rewarded or punished in this life. I just think it's a woefully inadequate explanation of evil and suffering in the world. And to say we all get what we deserve is just horribly simplistic and uninformed. None of us get what we deserve. So that blows this theory out of the water right away. Um, and, you know, God's not going to be beholden to human concepts of him. You know, as soon as you think, well, God's got to obey these certain guidelines, then he, you're going to be disappointed because as soon as you erect rules for God to follow, guess what? He's not going to follow them. And you're going to be frustrated because your your view about God just didn't pan out which is exactly what happened with Job's three friends. Now, Job knew that although he was a sinner, to be sure, like all men and women on the planet are, he had been conscientiously upright. He walked in the light that he had. He, he was doing the best job that he could. And he was utterly sincere when he protested to his three friends against their accusations of his sinfulness or his law-breaking or hypocrisy. Job said it this way in chapter 27. I vow by the living God who has taken away my rights, by the Almighty who has embittered my soul, as long as I live and while I have breath from God, my lips will speak no evil, my tongue will speak no lies. I'll never concede that you are right. I will defend my integrity until I die. I will maintain my innocence without wavering. My conscience is clear as long as I live. Job was a good man. He was walking in the light that he had. And so he could resist and, and rebuff their accusations of sinfulness or law-breaking or hypocrisy. Job's consistent, godly life exposed the faulty logic of his three friends and their faulty belief system. He was a thoroughly good person, and yet he suffered. And it's interesting, through the 30-some chapters of Job's responses, his replies aren't so much a, a, a rebuffing of his friend's accusations as much as they are just the cries of a desperate man who's in a lot of pain and is wanting to know why. 
and just think of what, what it is you've told God when you experience suffering, when someone you love gets sick or dies prematurely or you lose your job or your marriage blows up or any other number of horrible, evil issues of sin and suffering in your life. You know what you've said to God, both publicly and privately, when the shades are drawn and the lights are dim. We identify with Job, can't we? When we read his sufferings, 3.26, I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, only trouble comes. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 4. Is not all human life a struggle? Our lives are like that of a hired hand, like a worker who longs for the shade, like a servant waiting to be paid. I, too, have been assigned months of futility, long and weary nights of misery, lying in bed. I think, when will it be morning? But when the night drags on, I toss till dawn. Chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. How frail is humanity? How short is life? How full of trouble? We blossom like a flower and then wither. Like a passing shadow, we quickly disappear. Chapter 17, Job said, My spirit is crushed and my life is nearly snuffed out. The grave is ready to receive me. I cry out, help, but no one answers me. I protest. But there is no justice. How many of us would say we identify with the cries of this innocent, righteous man because he's suffering? Well, then chapter 32 introduces us to a new harangue by a new speaker. His name is Elihu. He's younger. He's evidently heard the entire debate. He's held his tongue, perhaps in deference to the seniority of the crew. And while he's been criticized as a conceited young man, his speech is actually the most courteous of of the entire debate. But his contention is that suffering is not exclusively punitive, but rather it's also corrective. Not only do you get what you deserve, but God teaches you a lesson in the middle of it, which really isn't much more helpful. And then suddenly the dialogue is brought to a close by God himself when he speaks from the whirlwind, or more literally, the tornado. Chapter 38, verses 1 to 3. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Now, friends, when God asks you a question, it isn't because he doesn't know the answer. We might be prepared for God to give us a clear, concise explanation of why Job is suffering in language that he and we can actually understand. But as we read chapters 38 to 42, we're surprised, if not disappointed. We've waded through 37 chapters of religious and philosophical and humanistic answers to pain and suffering, and God makes not the slightest move towards explaining Job's suffering or answering his and our questions. There's no explanation. And friends, God seldom answers the why questions. Rather, God asks us, or Job, a series of questions. Now, the language is really rich 
in, in, uh, in its sweep of illustration as it eclipses anything in the book. God actually has a sense of humor, which we'll see. Uh, he uses irony, no sarcasm. He humbles Job, but doesn't mock him. He, he doesn't humiliate him. But he asks a series of questions in relation to the earth, its creation, its, its oceans, its, uh, uh, the morning and, and, and the dawn and the evening and, and the sunset, the hidden sources of rain and snow and ice. Uh, God asks questions like this. Job, have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the, the dawn to rise in the east? Have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of Hades and death are located? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Oh, tell me about it if you know. <laughs> and then in relation to the to the heavens, the light and the dark, the cosmos, the, the elements, the stars, the constellations, he asked questions like this. Where does the light come from, and where does the darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? Oh, but of course you know all this, for you were born before it was all created, and you are so very experienced. <laughs> I love it. In relation to the uh, the living beings, he says, can you stop pray for a lioness? Have you given the horse its strength or clothed this neck with a flowing mane? Is it your wisdom that makes the hawk soar? Is it at your command that the eagles rise? And then in these special cases, uh, God asks this in chapter 40, verse 2. Do you still want to argue with the Almighty? Are you God's critic? Oh, you have the answers? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Will you discredit my justice and condemn me to prove that you're right? Are you as strong as God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? To which questions Job answers in the 42nd chapter. Now I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you and you must answer them. I had only heard you about you before, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said. I sit in the dust and ashes to show my repentance. So Job is humbled. It appears that God's point was roughly something like this. The natural world and all of creation is, is well-ordered for a grand result that's so far beyond Job, anything you can imagine, it's as if he were saying, Job, I'm so big, you do not have a clue. Just trust me. God alone is trustworthy. By exposing Job's profound ignorance of God's natural government, it shows Job and all mankind's utter incapacity to, to, to pass judgment on God's moral universe. Job apparently was not meant to understand what was happening. He didn't come to an understanding of his suffering, and we often don't either. God withholds from us a logical, rational, linear, understandable framework for pain, evil, and suffering. And I have to think, as God told Job, 
God cannot explain things to us in a way that we would ever understand. He frames it this way in the book of Deuteronomy, the 29th chapter. The Lord our God has secrets known to no one. There's just a lot of things right now that apparently we are not ever going to fully understand until the eternal state. You see, right now we're living in what we've known are, now know as the overlapping of two ages, the present evil age and the age to come that arrived in Jesus. And God's kingdom is already here, but it's not yet all the way here like it will be someday. We know that Satan was defeated at the cross and will ultimately one day be completely rendered powerless when Jesus comes again. But until then, he evidently still has a limited sphere of authority like he did in Job's day. And in the meantime, we're at war. And until Jesus comes back again, the church, those of us who have deliberately, willfully, consciously chosen to follow Jesus, we now, filled with the Holy Spirit, are to advance the rule and reign of God into the territory that's occupied by the devil. And so we're rooting out evil and sin and sickness and every other expression of his evil kingdom. And it's not going to be completely done away with until the day that Jesus comes back. The Apostle Paul framed it this way in 1 Corinthians. You see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man, Jesus. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised at the first of the harvest, and then all who belong to Jesus will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come. He'll turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Then, when all things are under his authority, the Son will put himself under God's authority so that God, who gave his Son authority over all things, will be utterly supreme over everything everywhere. You see, friends, Jesus is not yet supreme over everything everywhere. That doesn't happen until the end of time. When the, when the present evil age comes to a close and Jesus comes back, there's a limited sphere of authority. There, people still die. The curse is still here. Even though Satan has been uh, uh, positionally defeated at the cross, the outworking of that death and destruction isn't going to happen until Jesus comes back, puts everything under his authority, and then turns the kingdom over to God the Father, at which time he will be finally utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. But that day hasn't come yet. It's coming. That's what gives us hope. Right now, we're waiting for that day to happen. Now, I think that God's purpose was to bring Job to a place where he could finally just rest in God alone. He trusted God as absolutely good, righteous, and kind, over against all of his unexplained circumstances. And so like when you and I are baffled in our suffering and our pain and our disappointment and our failure, God's call to us is to trust him, period. Because God is big, he's good, he's present, he's powerful. And in the face of circumstances that scream otherwise, we're to trust God. Because he alone is trustworthy. Now, this is not blind faith. It's not 
it, it, it's not like jumping off an abyss where, where we know no bottom. It, God was with Job all along. God heard all the conversations. He, he witnessed all of the exchanges. He cared for Job. And in Christ, God has shown us that he suffers with us in the suffering servant. Jesus, who came to suffer and die, he shows us that God, God showed that he suffers with us. And now through his personal and powerful indwelling presence in the Holy Spirit, he says, uh, my presence in you is sufficient to enable you to trust me. And our faith can rest in God himself without explanation. He's much bigger than we imagine, and he's trustworthy. Uh, we'll wrap it up by saying that Job was restored. Chapter 42, verses 7 to 16, you can read that he was doubly blessed and redeemed. But this is not a promise from God that in every case our lives will be redeemed in the earth and, and will be doubly blessed. Uh, it is just the postscript of a good, benevolent God. Uh, God does promise that we will all be completely restored, but some of us won't experience it here on the earth, will experience it in the eternal state. Others may be privileged, like Job, to receive God's blessing and favor before it's all over. The point is, it isn't over till it's over, and when it's over, we're all restored. Now or later, there's coming a day when everything's going to be summed up in Jesus, and the curse is finally completely done, and we'll have a full understanding of everything that in this life we didn't get. In the meantime, the message of Job is that God is big, and he's trustworthy. Lord, these words feel so weak and so powerless against difficult, challenging, evil, painful circumstances, but they are the truth. And I pray that today you would enable us to, to uh, respond with the Holy Spirit's help and, and be elevated to the place of truth rather than watering your word down to the level of our experience. I pray you'd put power on it to every person's life, Lord, every person in this room, is struggling in some set of difficult circumstances. So enable us, Lord, to see you as much bigger, to see that we can trust you without explanation. And now, Lord, as we offer you our lives in, in the offering, and giving these gifts to you, in the sharing of worship songs and the sharing of communion, we pray that you take these tokens for what they are, uh, Symbols that, that say we want to love and trust you with our life, even when we don't understand. In your name, amen.